Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of DC Power Hour. We've got a pretty exciting episode lined up here. We have a special guest. I'll let him introduce himself here in a second. He's basically the voice of the listener. And there's actually a few of you out there, and, and we're pretty excited to have him on board and ask our famed Battery Blarney duo some some questions from the field. And I think it's going to be pretty enlightening for him, for myself, and maybe he'll he'll stump the guys. Who knows? Let's see if it happens. So, George and Alan, how you doing today? And then we'll we'll turn it over to to Ron and and get a proper introduction from him. Pretty good from my side. Yeah, living the dream here. Living the dream. All right, and you guys look great. So, Ron, welcome to the show. It kind of started here where where Ron sent me some some emailed questions, and we we certainly encourage any listener to do the same. You can email us at info at eepowersolutions.com and Ron reached out had a bunch of great questions and we thought let's bring him on the show and talk to these guys live and in person and so welcome Ron and just maybe tell us a little bit about your your background and and we'll get into it here well I've been a E&I tech electrical instrumentation tech for since over 30 been in power for 12 years and taking care of doing the battery maintenance and we've just been doing the typical maintaining the batteries and watching them but i've learned a lot more that there's a lot more to batteries than just keeping them clean and taking your test there's some more monitoring that needs to be done so i reached out to you guys to get some answers and then i come up with a whole bunch of crazy questions that just keep flying out out of my head so i thought i'd test you guys sounds good ron well let, let's have at it and thanks again and and we're looking forward to this I'm going to start off with what all can cause battery terminal corrosion on station batteries. Is it over and undercharging, and uh, could it also be porous lead castings? And what is your best way to mitigate it? I'll start off. First of all, there's no stupid questions. There's, there's only stupid answers. But uh, <laughs> you'll learn from our conversation that there's a one standard answer to all battery questions, and that is. It depends. So, but to answer, to look at your question, several things can cause terminal corrosion. Start at the beginning with the installation. Installers are unqualified installers. Well, f- first of all, I assume we're talking about vented lead acid batteries, flooded batteries. Here. Yes. That they have a habit of moving the batteries on the on the rack uh, using the terminals to grip on to move the batteries. So that's. That's when things start to go wrong because uh, those seals on those terminals are very delicate. And a lot of times, if you put pressure on the terminals, you can damage the seal, uh, which obviously will cause electrolyte to mitigate up the post. The other thing is that inadequate preparation, say, for instance, the uh, grease or the uh, oxide inhibitor is not applied properly to the to the terminal post. That can cause a problem. Uh, we apply this because of the dissimilar metals that we don't want to oxidize. So that can cause a bit. The most common cause I find recently is that 
because the sail is damaged in some way or another, you know, electrolyte creeps up that terminal and you'll see it at, you know, obviously corrosion. But with lead calcium batteries, there's another problem. And that is that because of the calcium hardener in the, in the plates, the positive plates will grow over life. And the good manufacturer will leave space at the bottom and space at this adequate space at the sides and at the top. But as the plates start to push up over a period of time, that can also damage that seal with the obvious, obvious, obvious problems. So there's several things. There's one manufacturer had actually, I had a whole batch of batteries where they, they used a compound in the covers for the covers, plastic covers, that was weak. And a whole, probably six months of production uh, in that particular manufacturer, the positive plate growth caused the terminal stage crack. So sometimes you look around the positive post and you see little hairline cracks. So there's several things that can happen. Uh, you're certainly overcharging makes that uh, positive plate growth happen a lot quicker into the life of the battery. So, so that, that could be a possible cause. And of course, heat. So, uh, George, I know you probably want to add something to that. So go ahead. Well, not much. You covered almost all of it. The only one of the questions we had there was that how do we stop it or how do we mitigate it? It's very, very difficult because once that seal is damaged, it's damaged. It's as simple as that. But as Alan said, you know, that you can get what appears to be corrosion coming up. It might even be people not doing or topping up with water and not careful enough. So the, uh, the thing I'd always say about it is if you have it, what you do is you clean it away and then watch it. And if it comes back, then you typically will have a post-seal leak that you're just going to have to keep cleaning up. It's as simple as that, to try and make sure that it, it doesn't get up and start corroding the actual inter-cell connectors. And a word of caution to MD that wants to listen to me in this case, put, adding another coat of no-ox grease on top of the corrosion is not the answer. It might hide it for a short period of time, but it doesn't cure anything. So if you have if you have corrosion that involves the no-ox grease, you have to basically strip the connection down, clean it all up, apply the no-ox very thinly. It doesn't need to be pasted on, and then reassemble it again. Does that help? George, the, the other thing is that, uh, you know, charge the battery properly. I've seen part of my life, is, I spent looking at warranty claims, and probably over 50% uh, battery wasn't being charged. It was being overcharged. So you want to make sure that the battery is charged in accordance with the manufacturer's recommendations, which for a lead that we're talking about, uh, lead, lead acids, probably lead calcium, vented lead acid batteries is probably about uh, 2.25 volts per cell of it if it's uh, 1.25. Uh, 2 and 5, the gravity, yeah. gravity electrolytes, yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just the thoughts coming from us guys. Well, that was a suspect because it was a 24-volt system and it was charging at 27.7 volts, which was over the 26.4 that we have on other chargers. So we just started seeing growth and it, it started just getting running away. We can't take the units down at this time, so we had to just clean them in place and we cleaned them thoroughly and coated them we used a spray protectant and i don't know that was another question what do you recommend grease spray on or just customer whatever's easier to apply 
whatever the customer supplies, you know, there's, there's two different types. There's the uh, Newox Grease, as George mentioned. Uh, there's also a paint on or spray on uh, type, but it's just some, some nasty red color, mm-hmm. which, you, which you don't want to get, you want to get in your clothes, but uh, anything, anything like that is okay. But, you know, if you use what the manufacturer recommends. It should, it, should only, it should only be on the connection points. It's not going to actually stop the leak. That's yeah. the whole point. You aren't going to stop the leak with it, so just keep it away from that point to make it easier to clean up. Yeah, the, the, thing, is, the thing is that a lot of people, when they clean the posts, you should only use a, a soft, uh, oh, one of these kitchen pads, I forget what you call them, but uh, some people use wire brushes, and the, the posts are lead-plated copper, though. So they, they rub, uh, rub the lead away, and uh, that causes further problems. It also causes contact problems. So use whatever compound the manufacturer recommends. Now, with respect to charging voltage, we have a, a white paper. I forget that I wrote it. I forget the title of it. It's something like, are you charging your batteries properly? And it tells you how to calculate the actual charge voltage if the manufacturer doesn't keep a specific voltage. It's quite an easy calculation, and I'm sure... Dave, that you can make this available. I, I don't want to go into the calculation now. It just takes too much time, but it's fairly simple. And it's based, it's based upon the specific gravity of the electrolyte that's been used. The charge voltage is purely dependent upon the specific gravity of the electrolyte. Moving on. Okay. Now, what are the advantage of, advantages, if any, of taking specific gravity readings along with ohmic readings? Does one or the other suffice, or should we be taking both, and why? Your turn, George. Okay, my turn. But I can't remember exactly when it changed. It's, it's well over 10 years ago that uh, in IEEE 450, the use of specific gravity as a means to establish a state of charge or state of health was not it was taken out. And float current was determined to be a better indication of state of charge. However, uh, while some people will tell you you never need to do a specific gravity test again, let me tell you it's still valuable as part of a diagnostic tool. One of the, one of the ways you can use it is, especially if you have a, a modern electronic one with a very long tube attached to it, you can, if you have uh, on a ventilated acid cell, you may well find that over a period of time, the individual unit voltages start to diverge. Where you had it fully charged at the very start, brand new, they were all came together very close. Now they start to diverge. Well, that's probably what's happening at that point is stratification. Okay, and uh, the stratification is what's happening is that basically the electrolyte separating out of the the specific the sulfuric acid is separating out of the uh, water in the electrolyte, and it's cre- it's creating layers. And that will give you a very unbalanced discharge in the event that that happens if you have a discharge. So a lot of people will just tell you, oh, you just put it on equalized for 24 or 48 hours and that will cure it. The thing is that uh, in today's business practices and everything else, simply putting a thing on equalized for 24 or 48 hours means two visits to site, you know, effectively. So it might be a better idea that when you go to site the first time, that you check these specific gravity levels at different levels within the jar. And if it varies enough, yes, then it's time to do a equalized charge. If it doesn't, hmm, maybe there's another problem there. 
you can try another equalised, you can try an equalised charge, but that might not solve the problem. But it, it, it's good to have at least, I'm very, very much into analysis. So I'm always looking for more than one thing to look at to confirm what I think it could be. It's as simple as that. But I had a, but specific gravity is still very valuable. I, uh, we have a major training contract at the present moment. And uh, my colleague who normally does the uh, practice part up in Milwaukee caught COVID a few months ago. And I had to come up from, uh, I live in Maryland as well, along with Alan, I'm up in Hagerstown. I had to go up and uh, run, do the actual practical course. I normally do the, the virtual one. And one of the things there was I, I'm faced with, I haven't been in the lab before. I, did, I don't know what the batteries are. I've just got this battery. I can do a discharge test on and teach the students. And one of the things we did was we actually checked and recorded all the specific gravity readings. Realized they were all over the place. So we actually put the battery on equalized charge for 24 hours. And then we did the discharge. We, but we checked the specific gravity again. And on two of the units, one in each of the uh, strings we were testing, the specific gravity had remained low. It, the rest of them had all come up slightly. That two didn't. So we then did the discharge test. And two units in the string failed 15 minutes before the end. The interesting thing was that when we actually turned the, the board, we were putting all the data up on and looked, and we realized that the two that had the low specific gravity were the two that failed. So, you know, you, you, it just gave you a reinforcement about it. There. So if you, if you did a specific gravity test before you did the discharge test, you might well be warned ahead of time of the ones that might fail during the discharge test. It's always good, just one second, it's always good that if you're doing it, you know, if you maybe have to bypass any of the units during the discharge, it's always nice to have an idea of what ones it might be, the ones you're watching. You agree with that, Alan? That's a pretty good answer. There's there's really two questions there, but uh, one is, I guess, the value of specific gravity readings. And then, as you uh, indicated, George, uh, you were talking about stratification here as well. But uh, on the first one, it was 2010, George, that the Pacific gravity readings were not completely eliminated, but the requirement was taken out of IEEE 450. The reasoning behind that was that it was a lot of work. Sometimes it caused more problems than, than enough. But the, the thing was, the reasoning was that, you know, it, it didn't really tell you all that much. Now, to are specific gravity readings worth it? Definitely. But talking about stratification here, that normally doesn't happen too much. Stratification is where the electrolyte stratifies, where the stronger electrolyte, which is heavier, you know, goes to the bottom of the cell and the, the, lo- the lower gravity electrolyte raises to- towards the top. So normally when the battery's under a float charge, which is a charge that compensates for the, nat- the natural losses within the battery, that's usually enough to stop the stratification. Stratification however, will cause the higher sulfation of the plates at the bottom of the battery. And this is where you get the problems, George. This is why you saw the different electrolyte readings, because all of the sulfates, the H2SO4, the lead sulfate wasn't driven out of the plates. It wasn't being driven out of the plates and retained by the plates in the form of sulfation, which, as you know, inhibits or retards the uh, uh, discharge you know, the, the discharge capabilities of that battery. So what we used to do in the old days is every time we went into a battery room, you pro- you're probably guilty of it as well, George. 
banging the side of off every cell with a, your, your fist and watch those bubbles rise. And that was usually enough to, uh, you know, mix the electrolyte up a bit and, you know, help uh, that stratification stuff. So in summary, except for lead antimony cells, specific gravity readings are not required, unless under special circumstances, uh, for uh, lead calcium cells anymore, or indeed for pure lead plant type cells. But they, it's not a bad idea to, what you said, George, is use a, a longer filler tube and just blow that, put it down to the bottom and start uh, pumping that bulb and mix the electrolyte up a little bit. I'm not a big fan of equalization. I think you're fooling yourself if you equalize before uh, you do a discharge test, but that's a whole other subject. So I hope that answers the question. And a couple more. Okay, good. Yeah, I was going to ask you if, if the stratification of the batteries with a higher concentration can cause more sulfate and because it is that more concentrated. But like you were mentioning, tapping on the batteries and releasing the hydrogen bu- um, bubbles, is that a good thing to do? Or should you leave the hydrogen in the batteries to possibly recombine with and make your electrolyte at the right concentration again? Or, or would that, I'm not a chemist, that's what I'm asking, or would that lead to more sulfation that can't be reversed. I wouldn't say it's a bad thing to do it. After all, a vented lead acid battery, they're designed so that uh, water deionized or distilled water can be added. So maybe you're using some hydrogen or maybe you're using some oxygen, but, uh, you know, that can be replenished. You know, if you're you're going to lose hydrogen uh, during recharge anyway. Okay. so as long as you, you make sure the level, electrolyte level doesn't go below that low level line, I always maintain it halfway between because when you put the electrolyte level to the top level mark, the high level mark, if you have a recharge and your recharge current is not, the voltage is not set properly, you're going to boil some of that electrolyte off. And once at the low level, you know, if you equalize, then when you're at the low level, then when you finish the equalizer, electrolyte level is going to be below that low level. So just keep it uh, keep it in the middle. George? Yeah, well, I totally agree with that comment about the electrolyte in the middle because, as I talk about in one of the lessons, is that if you have it at the top, especially with some of the modern uh, US-built batteries, there's not a lot of headroom in them. If you have it, if you have it filled to the top and you do a, or there's an equalized charge or even a recharge after discharge, the amount of gas is produced will actually expand the electrolyte and it will basically force it back up through the um, flame arrestor. If you, if you look at your flame arrestor and if it's got white material around it, that's basically what's happened. And at that point, you have to clean the flame arrestor. Because you, you know, it's basically you've got it blocked at the present moment. And let me tell you, cleaning flame arresters is not a fun exercise. I spent a holiday weekend at a government department down in DC doing just that. You have to clean them in sodium bicarbonate solution to neutralize them, and then you need to rinse them out in fresh water in order to, to clean that all the way. It's, uh, it's a painful exercise. So don't fill them above halfway. But, but as for the thumping, Alan, would I ever thump a battery? I'm pretty sorry, not that I would admit to tell you that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I would prefer to 
even uh, the trouble is that I'm not a believer. Most of the battery companies now no longer supply the old traditional specific gravity meter with, as partly because 450 no longer requires it. You, they don't supply an actual old-fashioned hydrometer with it any longer. So you haven't got something you can stick in and blow bubbles into it to try and stir it up. The digital hydrometers don't really pull enough of the electrolyte out or put it back to, enough to stir the whole battery up. So, but like Alan, I, I hate to do a dis, uh, uh, an equalized charge unless we have to. You know, Does that cover almost everything you asked? Definitely, and then some. Well, I'm going to have to go on to some questions you guys haven't answered yet. Okay, is sulfation accumulating at the bottom of the plates or that drop off? Is that typically what causes thermal runaway? Because you're the way that the plates have dividers in them, you shouldn't have any dendrites coming across and touching. So and we're talking lead acid batteries. It is would uh, thermal runaway happen from battery that's designed without a big sump in the bottom and you're starting to get crystals across the plates or what tends to cause thermal runaway in the lead acids? Show me to start with that one, Alan. Yeah, that's a wide subject. So uh, you can oh, go yeah. ahead. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You and I will have differences on this one. I have absolutely no doubt. Thermal runaway, actually, the event of thermal runaway, a lot of people will tell you does not happen on a vented lead acid cell. That's wrong. It does happen. But but it's more difficult to put a vented cell into thermal runaway. But typically, the, the basis of thermal runaway is that the battery gets hot and it's unable to dissipate that heat. And because uh, as it gets warmer, it actually draws more current. Okay? It draws more current. If it's not able to dissipate that, then the battery itself gets warmer and it draws more current. That's the, that's the fundamental basis of thermal runaway and in the, end, it's, in the end it's all due to it can be overcharge operating the battery in a high ambient temperature area and yes yes you can have uh, you can have dendrite growth even with the separators you can pierce the separator a not so much in the although i say that i've seen it in a, a, a vented cell but the the one time that the dendrite growth does become a problem is actually on a nickel cadmium cell as the cell ages, it can also go into thermal runaway because of shorting within the plates. But um, no, thermal runaway requires heat and basically heat and uh, too high a voltage to get it good, to really get it going. Am I covering enough for you, Alan? Yeah, well, not, not really, but very good points. Thermal runaway, I think you covered all the, the cause of that. It's pure Ohm's law, you know. That uh, as the battery heats up, the resistance is lowered, so it draws more current. And it's a vicious cycle. And it's usually caused by the things you said, George. You know, being overcharged, being operated at a higher temperature than normal or recommended. But with respect to sulfation of the plates, I don't think that contributes to thermal runaway. It is a problem. Sulfation occurs when the battery is discharged and not recharged quickly enough or was discharged and it's recharged, the recharge current and the float current is too low. So all that self, uh, is not driven off the, the plates and uh, back into this electrolyte solution. And you'll start to see this sparkling of the sulfate on the negative plates. But I don't think the two, I don't think the two are really related. So 
Would you agree? I, I, I'd agree with that. I, but uh, talking about Thelma Runaby, did you see the photographs we got sent this morning? Yeah, that looks like a case of Thelma Runaway. <laughs> yeah, we, we got three sets of photographs this morning from a, that were sent to us by a customer, one of our sales guys was visiting today. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, the top of this vented cell had caught fire beautifully. But the only thing I can see that, that by just a little bit I did see, it looks as if they may have allowed the electrolyte to drop way below the plates. Yeah, it may I, have leaked. I, I noticed that, and, and I, I haven't answered that, no. Andrew, yet, but, but, but I will. Yes, but thermal runaway, the one sure way to protect against it is uh, no matter what temperature your battery's running at, with ambient temperature, is to have some form of temperature compensation on the charger. Now, some of the older chargers uh, don't have this feature. So what I usually advise is that, you know, make sure it's not being overcharged. But uh, also, the cause of thermal runaway is not adequate ventilation. And it happens more in enclosed cabinets than it does on an open frame rack. Uh, it ha doesn't happen all that much with, uh, George mentioned that, uh, you know, vented lead acid batteries, it, you know, it does happen. It doesn't happen all that much. There's, there's one good reason for that is that as opposed to a valve regulated lead acid battery where the electrolytes is absorbed in the separators, with a vented lead acid battery, flooded battery, the electrolyte is in contact with the case. So there's good thermal management of that battery. You know, it allows for heat dissipation. And uh, normally the vented lead acid batteries as well have a much higher resistance, ohmic resistance, than do the valve, re uh, the valve regular lead acid batteries. So anyway, so uh, I, do, I do forget what the question was actually, but we've been rambling on. <laughs> and uh, I don't think we disagree on that, but... Uh, I don't think really that thermal rollaway and sulfation are related at all. No, I would agree and with that. I believe in a previous podcast, you talked about uh, where to measure the temperature. If you're going to do temperature compensation and you want to go more towards the middle of the string, is that correct? No, no, not, uh, not just your first battery on the ends. Cause they're naturally going to be cooler. No, well, what we recommend and what I triple recommends is taking out the negative most post of the battery. And why and is that? Why is the negative the, versus the positive? Well, that's where you'll see the highest temperature rise. Okay. In a battery because of the electrochemical uh, action, reaction within that battery. Because those plates are going to heat up faster than the positive plates? Exactly. Okay. But you, you, you comment about where to actually locate that temperature sensor. Yeah, typically you will look to put it someplace in the middle, the place that has got the least air circulation. And so that often means that you have to at least ensure that the air conditioner comes on while you're looking at it to decide where the, the air conditioner is blowing over the battery, because that can make a major difference. You know, yes. I have uh, seen people put the sensor in such a place that it was cooled every time the air conditioning came on. You know, so yeah, I think, I th yeah, we're talking about two different things here, George. Where would you measure the oh, temperature? And that's at the negative most part of the yes, battery. Yes, they're well, located located within the battery. They're located at a point in the battery that's got the minimum yeah. ventilation. So, well, actually, I had asked both questions, and you answered both of them. The the one question with the, the negative terminal, that 
explains that. And then if you're going to do the temperature compensation for your charger, a battery that's going to be in the warmest or in the middle of your rack. Mm -hmm. So that, that was what I was getting at there. So awesome. Good, good answers. Good questions. Kind of around uh, away from that. What are the effects of the AC ripple coming through your charger on the batteries or your DC system? What's the negative effects? Oh boy. Uh, are you on our uh, uh, newsletter mailing list? Not yet. Well, get on it because I did a four or five page paper in our last edition on that very subject of Ripple. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not deflecting the question, but I'd, I'd advise you, know, you read that. But uh, basically, there's a lot of studies been done on that recently on Ripple effect on the battery. I mean, we're talking about Ripple voltage and Ripple current. And last time I checked with the IEEE, it says typical IEEE doc answer, and I'm guilty of it as well, is that it's not really fully understood yet. But an IEEE 1491, which is the uh, deals with the uh, monitoring of uh, batteries, there's a section in it on why you measure ripple current and ripple voltage. Also, there's an annex, it's Annex A, about three pages that uh, discusses this whole subject. And I'm very familiar with that because I wrote it. But uh, the this, this thing is, we do know now that Ripple does have an effect, especially on, uh, we find it on UPS batteries. And the reason for that is that the chargers are not so well regulated as they are with, say, a telecom charger or utility charger. Uh, but not only is the Ripple coming from the, from the charger, but it's, also being reflected back from the inverter section of a UPS. So you, you, you get ripple coming back. But what, what we do know, or what they do know, is that it has three, three effects. One, it causes heating, battery heating, uh, depending on the amplitude of the ripple, uh, which, by the way, shouldn't be... Uh, the IEEE has certain limits for it, some of them quite generous, but it also has... Imagine if, say, it's a 60 hertz ripple, so it's charging and discharging that battery 60 times a second. So it does shorten battery life. Also, they have found that it was lead calcium product that probably has an effect on the growth, you know, explained before, the uh, positive plate growth as well. So it does have an effect. We don't really know how much the effect. There were some landmark papers put out there, one by a very good paper by uh, C&D, which is, was a time charter power systems, I believe, uh, written by a very close friend of mine, uh, Tom Ruhlman, who George knows as well. So to answer that question, and for all of our other listeners, please contact Eagle Eye, subscribe to the newsletter. And for the newsletter for August, there's a, what I think was a, although I wrote it, I think was a pretty good article on Ripple and kind of bringing everybody up to date. So, George, what would you like to add to that? Not a lot. As usual, you covered it very well. My only comment is that it does it does affect. The, the, some people will try to tell you, especially the UPS manufacturers, that it does not affect the battery life. All I'll tell you is that sitting in one of these 1491 meetings a number of years ago, that one of the UPS manufacturers was firmly denying that it had any effect on the batteries in the UPS, and the UPS could possibly to blame for it. 
until one of the battery manufacturers sat up and said, look, I have a simple answer for this. He says, if I use this battery in a UPS, it lasts three years. If I use it on a telecom system, it lasts seven. And that was it. You know, that was the end of the conversation. But, but yeah, if, if you do have a, sorry, I, I got a telephone ringing in the background here. I hope you can't hear it. But, but certainly measure it. And if you, if you see a, a normal high ripple, there's something wrong. And it's usually the, you know, the charger, probably a filter capacitor in the charger has gone by. So if you see high ripple on the battery, don't immediately suspect it's the battery. In the older days, we used to call it the poor man's battery monitor, where people go in and measure the ripple and try and tell you it, it equated to something wrong with the battery. But it's usually a filter capacitor or something like that gone with the charger. So the first thing you want to do is check the charger. So is that something that's susceptible that happens from some of the older chargers, or is it more, like you said, the new, the UPS that used had the inverters, just like VFDs put a lot of noise on the system. You get a lot of spikes, and I would assume that the UPS inverters are pretty noisy as well. I was just going to say, it really affects, when you talk about Ripple, we, we tend to talk about either 50 or 60 hertz. So it's affected by any charger or any inverter that's working at those frequencies. That's been reflected. If you're using the modern switch mode chargers, they're working at much, much higher frequencies and simply don't have the same impact. But the uh, typically, it is the filter capacitors on the charger that have um, decayed because they're all electrolytics. And like a little bit like batteries in some ways, as an electrolytic will dry out, especially if it's been operated in a high ambient temperature. And the moment it dries out, it stops working properly. It's something that most people will try to ignore because changing out the capacitors in some of the chargers is not a pleasant occupation. You know, they're hidden in very difficult places to get to. That's that's really, the, it's, it's going to be at the 50, 60 hertz, not at the high frequency side. But the, the typical charger that's used in utility companies uh, up until recently has been a SCR charger. And uh, they didn't go for the... F- control ferro resonance. So slowly getting into the uh, push mode rectifiers or I could probably give you a dozen reasons, but anyway, I don't think that the SCR chargers generated a lot of ripple, but they certainly do have those uh, filter capacitors. But one thing, a sideline here on this ripple, what it does affect, if you have a battery monitor and it's the battery monitor is a based upon an injecting a signal of whatever frequency into that battery uh, by what so I can check the impedance of the conductance of the battery, it could affect that. We found that in the past. Uh, I won't mention any names, but there are some monitors out there that are susceptible to noise. I shouldn't call it noise. Noise is random, but are susceptible to uh, both noise and ripple. So it can affect the readings you're getting from your monitor. Would you comment on that, George? Yeah, absolutely. It it tends to be, as you say, if if somebody's using a AC signal in order to do the uh, measure the ohmic value, it can, it can be affected badly by the, uh, the, the readings. But most of the modern manufacturers today have developed software techniques to, to handle that. Not saying it doesn't occasionally happen and you may get the odd strange reading, but that could be noise. But 
they uh, in most cases they can uh, they they've learned how to cope with it and at least minimize the impact of it yeah and that applies to both hardwired monitors and hand handheld yes. monitors yeah so next question next okay good answers again i'm glad i uh, talked to you guys we have a battery room that has a big Liebert air conditioner in there that has humidity control on it. I'm not sure who spec that out, but is that something that's common for battery rooms, a humidity, a relative humidity control, or is that just uh, something they added in on our overpriced air conditioner? Your turn, George. Uh, my turn. I guess this one would be my turn. It's a good question. It's a very good question. And I'm going to do, I am definitely going to come in with the answer. It depends. Theoretically, if, if you know, if you have a higher level of or a reasonable level of humidity, you're not likely to lose as much. The uh, If you're losing anything from the batteries due to heat, basically evaporation, the uh, higher humidity in the room would help it. But that's not the majority of uh, water you lose from the vented cells is going to be the, uh, is due to the hydrogen oxygen. Uh, so I, I'll be honest. My guess is that it was an unnecessary addition to the system. I just don't see any true value to it. I can come up with a couple of other things here, George, but oh, uh, I might guess this, this is a live broadcast, and I'm sad to say that I've just received word that Queen Elizabeth has died, oh, passed away. Yes, so okay. The humidity, it is an overkill, I think, the, you know, the humidity sensor. So it, it senses humidity, but what does it do about it? But one way it can affect a battery, if it's very hu- operated in a very humid condition, is you get condensation on the battery, on the battery, which could cause a short circuit or a ground fault. So that's that's one big consideration. But uh, is it an overkill? Put it this way, I haven't seen too many of them for indoor batteries. I've seen I've seen them in cabinets, but for an indoor battery, I haven't seen too many. Because we have several battery rooms we're going to be upgrading our air conditioners on, and um, that is a, a large cost there to get a that type of climate control. And I was thinking that it was the only thing I was thinking about was, like you were saying, it, a drier room, you might lose some more electrolyte, but I'm in there monthly, and we're monitoring them all the time. It's all on site. We don't do remote stations all our remote stations and substations, they use uh, seal batteries anyways. So uh, you can't see your level. So uh, they get what they get. You have to talk with those guys about their maintenance, but uh, that'll be happening soon. Yeah. Well, okay. it's, 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 it's very important for the air conditioning. Uh, I think George alluded to earlier. You don't want that air conditioner blowing directly on the battery because you're, you're cooling one, one part of the battery and you're not cooling the whole battery. So therefore, your, your your temperature readings in that battery will all over, be all over the place. Right. But uh, so the placement is very very important. Or if it is, if it's unavoidable, uh, press some, put some louvers in there. Sorry, or so, something just to divert the for the, the heat. So next, I have one room that has that, and we're going to start putting diverters in because there's about a four degree difference in temperatures, and uh, I don't care for that. And okay, what happens? With your new batteries to their plates, when you have a break-in period, you said you want to take commissioning readings, but you also want them to sit and break in or condition for a while before you take your 
baseline readings. So are you developing a coating of, on the batteries of a light sulfate coating? What is happening there? Well, when the batteries come out of the factory, come off the charging tables, they're not, the plates are not 100% formed. So you can get them 100% formed, but you don't want to pay 50% more for your batteries, I'm sure. So, so what happens in that forming? The, the plates that, that lead, the lead uh, sulfate, lead oxide, should I say, is fully bonded and, and formed within the battery. Also, the, uh, you know, the electrolyte, the final, you know, you know, making sure there's no sulfate retained in the paste and it's driven into the electrolyte. But the thing is that almost all manufacturers recommend that A, the battery be given a freshening charge. Because even though, you know, it comes straight from the factory to you, there are losses. And uh, you can actually, we have, a, we have another white paper, Eagle has another white paper that we share with our customers uh, to tell you, uh, describes the whole process. But uh, the other reason for uh, giving a freshening charge is you're trying to weed out any inf infant mortalities. So I know George would recommend taking your know, ohmic measurements and voltage measurements of a new battery as it's installed. Now, the problem is that the recommended freshening charge requires that you charge the battery for at an elevated voltage call it an equalized voltage, not really an equalized voltage, but you charge at an elevated voltage for 72 hours. Well, this is not going to happen because the installers don't want to come back 72 hours later, or it's not in the, it's not in the price of the project, or, and you know, take it off equalized, you know, and then take another set of readings and wait for 24 hours to have to stabilize and take another set of readings. So that doesn't happen. So what the manufacturers recommend is that, before I go on to that, we, I produced a, a chart that, depending on the specific gravity of the electrolyte, uh, you could check the voltage of that battery and could relate it to the percentage charge of, of the battery directly to the voltage you're taking. It's, it's not 100% accurate, but it's a very good guide. But what the manufacturers have recommended now, almost all of them, is that depending, well, there's an exception, I'll explain that in a minute, but that the batteries be in service, if it's lead antimony battery, that has be in service uh, three months before you take your baseline readings. Well, the, George, George explained this, there's two, for me, there's two baselines, but the, your actual baselines for ohmic measurements, uh, you take that uh, lead antimony three months afterward, after uh, it's installed and for lead calcium. You don't see many lead antimony these days, but uh, for lead calcium, it's six months. So you wait until that battery's been in service for six months before you take your ohmic measurement baseline readings. And uh, the, the exceptions are uh, to do with valve-regulated lead-acid batteries. Uh, just not the lead-calcium type, but the thin plate pure lead or lead-tin plates. They're an, exception. They're an exception to that, and they have a much longer shelf life. Sorry, I'm, I'm confusing shelf life here with times in service, but uh, so there is that exception. But I know George is going to say something at baseline readings here. Absolutely, because you and I don't totally agree on this. That actually he's correct in a sense that there are two sets of baseline readings. You have to establish if you're putting a monitor on there or any, if you're doing ohmic measurements manually or with a monitor, you establish that first set of readings on the day it's installed. 
and that will give you a set of readings. You use those to identify any infant mortality in the cells, the units, because if there's an infant mortality, it will change, and it will probably change drastically in comparison. Uh, typically, you can you can use it if, if you if you actually plot the 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 rise and drop of over that first period of time that uh, to the point at which you establish the second baseline. So in other words, you allow all the corrections to be made. In other words, the individual cells become fully charged. And at that point, you establish a new baseline, which is the one for the rest of the, the life of the battery. But don't ignore the first one, because otherwise you won't identify the units that have infant mortality, the ones that have changed quite drastically as a result of a problem, perhaps because the pallet of batteries was dropped or something like that. So you want to you want you want to monitor the change in the omic values during that first period, but then you reset the the actual baseline to, to do the rest of it. The other question you, that comes up is is whether how was the battery actually manufactured? If we're talking about most of the valve regulated units, the actual plate formation takes place once the units are completely assembled. Whereas on the larger, the vented cells, a lot of the times on the good manufacturers, they are the plates themselves are tank formed and then they are assembled. And if they're tank formed, they're much closer to you know a, an accurate formation, a more equalized formation than you get by simply adding electrolyte to a, a, a one that's assembled. You know, the the electrolyte may not be easily dispersed across the plates, all sorts of reasons. So they take longer to come into balance. All right. Well, I think we got time for one more quick one. If you got something quick, that would be great. Otherwise, uh, I think we covered a lot. Well, you guys have answered all my battery questions, but I do have one more to finish this off. Are you ready? Yep. How do you get down off an elephant? I, I know how to eat an elephant, but I don't know how to get down off an elephant. No, no idea. No, you don't get down off an elephant. You get down off a duck. Oh, okay. Or a goose. You, 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 you're going to make a good <laughs> battery engineer. You've got a dumb enough sense of humor. It's horrible. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> well, thank you very much because I have thoroughly enjoyed this session. This has been fun. We should maybe do it again sometimes. What do you think, David? Absolutely. Yeah. If you come up with another batch of questions, Ron, you know where to go. Well, I'm going to either be doing an online or in-person training soon. So that with solar field work, we're getting trained on all sorts of new things. But no, this, this was great. I got a lot of questions answered. Y'all went above and beyond, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You guys are the smartest guys in batteries that I've talked to, but you're also the only two guys I've spoke to in batteries. So... <laughs> Now, well, good information. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. And I, I would, I would encourage you to uh, get talk to David there, since he's your point man, and share some of those uh, newsletters. Maybe yes. go back and read them all because a lot of the stuff we talked about today. For each newsletter, I write a technical article, and it deals with a specific subject. Last month happened to be ripple current and voltage. This month will be battery warranty, I believe. I better be because I'm halfway through it. So, <laughs> so uh, okay. it's been a pleasure, Ron. Yep. And, uh, 
you know, don't hesitate to contact us. Any other questions or, qu or queries or problems you have. And if, if you have a problem with battery, if you can send a photograph with that problem, you know, what's to say a photograph? It's like a thousand, a thousand words. Yes. Yes. Well, okay. I'm monitoring the batteries that I just went through. We clean them with rags. Nothing uh, too abrasive because, yes, you do have lead in the air and you're taking the coating off. But we're, we recoated them and seeing if that helps mitigate some of the corrosion. I think it, part of that is lead and acid should be able to mix. But once you add oxygen to the mix, then you have the crystals. Am I right on that? Yeah, you got um, oxidized. Oxidized. Yeah, 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 and then just, it grows and it pushes yeah. the rest of the grease away. Yeah. So I think I might have it. We'll know in a month. What they recommend is, uh, and why I didn't come up with it at the time, because we're trying to avoid trade names here, but right. uh, use a very light scotch bright pad to uh, clean those terminals. You're not trying to take plating away. You just want to clean them. Right. Mm. That worked, worked perfectly. Okay. All right. Sounds good, finished, guys. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.